In October 2005, a group of teenagers from a municipality outside Paris were passing through a construction site on their way home from a soccer game. A neighbor saw them and called the police, whose arrival caused the teenagers to flee. The three boys sought refuge from the cops and an electrical power station. Two of them died from an electric shock that caused a blackout in the area. Buna and Zayed are the names of the deceased. They were of African descent, and they were just 15 and 17 years old. Their deaths sparked days of protest in the outskirts of Paris. To quell the uprising, the police used tear gas grenades, one of which rolled into a mosque, sparking more outrage among the racially and religiously oppressed people who inhabit the banlieues of the French capital. The protests against the deaths of Buna and Zayed and the conditions that caused them only subsided when the president of France announced a state of emergency. Given that this atrocity is not unfamiliar to many in the United States, France, or elsewhere, it's important to pose some theological questions. What is the meaning of public worship or liturgy in this contemporary context of economic, racial, and religious oppression? How do the sacraments relate to the reality of oppression and the people's desire for liberation? And are our liturgies and sacraments today reinforcing injustices or challenging them? This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology, and I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome back to the Liberation Theology Podcast. It's been a while, as I've mentioned briefly before, for the next year or so, episodes will be coming out every other month. The leader of the Midwest region of the Jesuits missioned me to France for further studies in theology, so I'm dedicating most of my spare time now to learning French. It's going, uh, let's say, okay. As for today's show, we've got two parts for you. First, an interview. I've invited the Jesuit scholar and priest Anthony Lasvardi to introduce sacramental theology, his area of expertise. Tony's originally from Minnesota, and as a Jesuit, he's worked for several years as the administrator of three parishes on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. He's completed a doctorate at the Pontifical Athenaeum of St. Anselm in Rome and now teaches at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome and spends summers doing pastoral work on the reservation. He's finishing up a book to be called Water, Blood, and Desire, based on his dissertation about the baptism of desire. And I think our conversation here shortly will provide a helpful context for seeing how discourses around liberation theology and sacramental theology can work together and challenge each other and at times collide with each other. And second, we'll look at the Mysterium Liberationis chapter on the sacraments, which also happens to have been written by a Jesuit, Victor Cordina, who taught, researched, and did pastoral work in Cochabamba, Bolivia. This episode's reading of Cordina will flesh out my interpretation of Catholic liturgy, especially that sense in which it ought to be ugly and scandalous, as I wrote two years ago. So thanks for joining, and let's get to it.
All right, Tony, it's great to be with you this afternoon in Europe. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you because we had met a few weeks ago and we're discussing that you were studying sacramental theology. And I thought this is perfect because we have an upcoming episode on the sacraments and liberation theology. So thanks so much for uh, being with me this afternoon and for taking time today to answer some questions about the fundamental components of sacramental theology that can help give us a better understanding uh, when we go later in the episode into the sacraments and liberation theology. Great. Well, I, I'm very happy to be here, and I was very happy to uh, to meet you and get a chance to talk to you a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm glad that, that this has worked out. And I'm looking forward to, with some of the materials you've sent me and you know our conversation to learning a bit more about liberation theology uh, as well. Excellent. Well, maybe a good place to start would be, I feel like someone who specializes in sacramental theology, there's probably maybe a story <laughs> that might be behind that. How was it that you got involved in sacramental theology? Yeah, I would say that the big influence for me was doing regency uh, as a Jesuit. So that's the period of our Jesuit formation uh, where we take a break from studies and go and do some sort of work for two or three years. And most Jesuits end up teaching in high schools for that, at least most American Jesuits do. And I had a somewhat unusual regency in that I was on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And it so happened that a few months before I was supposed to go out there, there was a personnel shakeup and the parishes, there are three small parishes on the reservation, ended up without a permanent pass. And so there were priests who would come in to be able to say mass, but there was no one who was there on a stable basis. And so the superior of the mission said to me, guess what? How do you feel about running parishes? Um, <laughs> and so I said, well, I'll give it a try. Um, and so I, I did parish work for those three years of Regency. And what I really realized at the time is that, and even reflecting on it afterwards then in theology, was that most of my work in parishes revolved around the preparation for the sacrament in the celebration of the sacraments. The average Catholic, the, for the overwhelming majority of Catholics, their primary experience of the church and their primary experience of Christ is through the sacraments. The way that they are catechized is tends to be mostly through preparation for First Communion and preparation for Confirmation and things like that. So it gave me an appreciation for the way that the church's life revolves around the sacraments. And I had then some experiences with, um, with trying to, to figure out what works in terms of sacramental preparation and celebration and try different things. And some things worked and some things didn't. But it you know, it was something that made me see this is this is really at the center of, of the experience of God for the overwhelming majority of Catholics. You know, we Jesuits get to do the spiritual exercises and things like that, but that is something that's, uh, you know, it's a privilege that, that we have, and that's not, um, that's certainly not the point of entry for most people. And so, you know, I saw the sacraments as something that bring together a lot of different aspects of, of theology you know, where, where it impacts people's lives. It impacts them where they live, uh, how they pray, how their communities gather, all those, all those sorts of things. And, you know, and I mentioned the challenges too of, you know, trying some things that worked, some things that didn't. 
The fact is, I think that there are real challenges today with how we celebrate the sacraments and that needed more reflection and that do need more reflection. And so there is kind of a, as I see it, there's a practical element to sacramental theology as well. And I think there always has to be. It always, the sacraments are always, you know, they're not just ideas, but they're, they're encounters, they're events. So that, that practical dimension is, is something that you can't lose sight of. Uh, no sacramental theology can really be sort of entirely abstract. Yeah. So that's, and then I, you know, I started to get into it. I realized as I went further on in studies that their sacramental theology in a lot of ways has been a neglected field in theology, I would say for, for a while, for, you know, a couple hundred years, <laughs> um, maybe. So in, in the 20th century, certainly both before and after Vatican II, I think that there are, there's not, not, uh, not a lot of attention has necessarily been paid to sacramental theology as compared to other times in the church's history. Uh, you know, as I went on in, in studies, people here at the Gregorian University, for example, were very eager to have somebody studying sacramental theology because they needed uh, somebody to, to teach in it. And um, and other people were very encouraging as well, my superiors and so forth. So that's always always gratifying to know that you'll have a, a job. There's, a, there's demand for, for what you're studying. I hear that. And it's curious that you mentioned your regency because I just finished up my regency at Xavier University and on the weekends, somewhat inspired by liberation theology and also somewhat inspired by an opportunity that arose, I was able to help out with a a Latinx parish in Cincinnati, and that okay. involved some a sacramental preparation. And I noticed uh-huh. that many of the folks in the Hispanic community who would come through the door would be either seeking the sacraments for themselves or for their, their children. And so we ended up right. developing a faith formation program. And uh, my role in the faith formation program was working with the adults and uh-huh. uh, and it was it was wonderful to do that and to sponsor a few people who were entering the church who had been catholic in some cases uh, all of their lives or would say that they've been catholic all of their lives and then they're just coming into the church in that a sacramental way through baptism and uh, some of the other sacrament sacraments as well. So I feel like that was an important part of my regency that I take with me now into my theology studies, because as you say, it's eminently practical. Right. Yeah. I mean, it really, you see, I, I had similar experiences there where we, I ended up with the adults and a lot of the programs, we would divide um, the adults from the kids and I'd spend time with the parents and, um, you know, some of the volunteers would spend time uh, with the kids. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. Um, if it's done right, you know, you're, you're walking with people, seeing them grow, seeing them discover, discover the faith, discover who Jesus is and, um, you know, meet, meeting him concretely. So it really is, yeah, what you're talking about has, is kind of the joy that has motivated my studies too. So That's awesome. And, you know, we're talking about the sacraments, but maybe we can go <laughs> further with a question just about, I don't know, I, I feel like, oh, how would I answer this question? Uh, but what what is a sacrament? In fact, that was a question <laughs> that I received many times when people would say, oh, I want my child to be baptized. Uh, I want my child to be confirmed. And then we would say, oh, you might be seeking the sacraments. And then the person would say, what is a sacrament? So how would you answer that question? 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question, and it's more complicated than uh, than it may seem because there are sort of classical definitions of a sacrament. But the way that I would prefer to start thinking about what a sacrament is is to go back to um, there's a homily that Saint Leo the Great, Pope Leo the Great, gave on the Feast of the Ascension, and there's this little phrase in it where he's talking about Jesus going up going up to heaven after the after the resurrection. And um, but still being present, very much present to us, for us, um, with us uh, here on earth, and not really being less present than he was when he was walking around on the earth. What Leo said, and the, the great phrase, which for me is the beginning of sacramental theology, is he said, what was visible in the Lord when he was walking on earth has passed over into the sacraments, over into the mysteries. And the way the way that I think about it, there's the, the mystery at the center of our faith is that God became incarnate, that he took on flesh, uh, you know, he fully immersed himself in the reality of being human with its materiality, with its limitations as well. And when you think about being human, there's part of the experience that can't be fully expressed, um, that sort of defies definition, um, that you can read somebody's CV, and it's not the same thing as meeting them. Even reading their autobiography is not the same thing as, as meeting them. Talking over Zoom, as we're doing now, is not the same thing as being present with somebody. And so there, there is that, that incarnational element to our existence, which I think God embraces. And that's, it's more than just embraces. That's how he works our salvation. The sacraments are what preserve that incarnational element for all time for us in the church um, so that we can personally encounter Christ in that deep incarnational way, that, that difficult to express, impossible to express, that moreness that comes from being with somebody personally is what is present in the sacraments. That And even, I would say, there's a sort of intimacy that, that's really the, the, a, a privilege of the Christian sacraments that goes beyond what, even what, say, you know, John the Baptist would have experienced when he met Christ on earth in, you know, in the Holy Land, or even St. Joseph. I mean, St. Joseph never would have received communion, but John the Baptist wouldn't have. And that's something that's a sort of intimacy with the, with the body of Christ. I mean, a, a oneness that goes, you know, that, that was hoped for by the prophets, that was hoped for in the Old Testament, but that is given to us in the sacraments. And so when I, when I taught about the sacraments in, on Rosebud, in, in the parishes, I would always try to to fit them with, I like stories. I like using the Bible. I like telling the story of Jesus. And would fit try to fit the sacraments within that narrative, um, and that's really I think the you know wh where they belong. Now there are, as I said, there are sort of classical definitions of the sacraments, which I think help. But you know the the, the very nature of the sacraments as incarnational, as being concrete before they're theoretical. It also means that they sort of resist definition, that there is always going to, whatever definition you have of the sacraments, you're going to need to say something more. You're going to need another definition. And the fact is they're all the, you know, the church didn't receive an abstract definition of sacraments and then fit 
different rights into that definition. We had the concrete rituals existed before we had sacramental theology, before we came up with a category of sacrament. Um, so something that all definitions of sacraments would include is that there's they're visible signs. Um, so there's something concrete, like I said, that incarnational part, that visibility uh, touchability is something that is essential to what a sacrament is. They use, when I say they're signs or they're uh, symbols, um, I use that word very technically and carefully because I don't want it to be to um, to be understood in a, a reductive sense. Um, sometimes people, when they when they hear the word symbol, they think, "Well, it's something that's not real." You know, it's only symbolic. Might mean, well, that's it's not the real thing. And in fact, it's just the opposite. That when I'm using that word, and when sacramental theologians use that word, what we're trying to say is that they're referring to more than what can be seen. So there's that the visible element is is essential, just as you know our bodies are essential to who we are. But it's not all of who we are. I mean, there are relationship elements to our being. There's you know our our history and our future and our potentials. That's all a part of of who we are. And with the sacraments, the fact that they use a symbolic language is meant, I think, is, is appropriate, is necessary, so that they can express this superabundance of meaning, so that they um, th- that they always say more than than what you know I could say in a podcast or even in a uh, you know in a thick a thick tome. They are instituted by Christ. So going back again to that the origin with Christ, what it means to be instituted is something, I think it's a little bit different with each sacrament. It's pretty easy to point to the, the Last Supper as the moment of the institution of the Eucharist and then the priesthood too. But something like anointing of the sick, I think you know, in my opinion, to have a real adequate theology of anointing of the sick, um, I think you have to point to all of the special attention that Christ showed to the sick throughout his ministry. Um, And I would want to include that rather than say, well, there's one moment, you know, when he instituted it, but to point to kind of that broader context of being part of what we mean when we, we talk about the sacraments being instituted by Christ and then given to the church. So there's a relational dimension to the sacraments. There's an objective sense uh, of what the sacraments are, that there is, I mean, that's what is necessary for them to be a real encounter with Christ, with somebody who's not just a product of our imagination and desires, but there's an objective element to the sacraments. And then that they they confer grace. Again, this goes back to the idea of them not being purely symbolic in a limited sense, but that they actually do what they're signifying, that there's something happens in when we celebrate the sacraments, um, that they, they make a difference. Um, this the celebration and that that can't be reduced to something else it can't be reduced to you know to an idea or you know even to an ethical program or something um, something like that but that there's there's just this irreducible beyondness that is expressed uniquely in the sacraments so I, I'd put I tried to put all of those things into uh, into a definition you know and then, and then say at the end to some extent, 
until you've celebrated the sacraments, the, the definition is going to be inadequate as well. Um, it's not enough. They aren't meant to be explained. Um, they're meant to be done. They're meant to be celebrated. So that there is, that makes them, you know, epistemologically strange, I guess, in some ways um, that they aren't, they don't fit neatly into any philosophy. And I was going to ask the question about why the Catholic Church has sacraments, and maybe if I can attempt to answer it as you would, if I'm, if I'm correct, what I was hearing was that the sacraments in the Catholic Church preserve the grace of the incarnate Christ. Yeah. And, and that may be really one of the reasons why the Catholic Church has the sacrament sacraments in the sense that the Catholic Church you know, w- wishes to bear Christ to the world, to be the, the Christopher. And so that may be uh, precisely what it is. Would that be a good way to summarize it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say that that's, uh, that's excellent. That's what I'm trying to get at. You know, one, one way that I think of it is, um, again, looking at the, the concreteness of the sacraments themselves, the, the sacrament at the center of our sacramental system is the Eucharist. And so thinking about communion, communion is what puts us into union with Christ. I mean, that's the goal. It's not It's not even so much a means to an end as that's, you don't need to justify that. You don't need to explain why it's desirable to be in communion with God in terms of any other thing. Um, you know, it's not, it's, we don't desire to be in communion with God because it will get us you know, better grades or better um, whatever, or anything else. It's all those other things we desire because the real end goal is communion with God. And so the sacraments are, are how that happens. Um, you know, and as you're saying, as I'm emphasizing that incarnational bit is, is part of it because it's a total communion, you know, and it's a huge, for us, I mean, it's a human communion. And in order to be, be a human communion, it has to involve all of the aspects of our being. And there's a way that um, the sacraments do that just as the incarnation was, you know, God's yes to what it means to be human. Um, I think this, the sacraments are a continuation of that. Yes. Um, to us on an, on, you know, on a personal level uh, that cuts across time. Um, and, you know, that beats us, meets us today. And regarding the sacraments, how is it that they have kind of evolved over time? I know you had mentioned that uh, John the Baptist and uh, St. Joseph, they may not have, you know, had the seven sacraments in, in right. number mm-hmm. or in kind or in type at all. And so how is it that the sacraments have evolved in history, both in type and then in number? Yeah, the, the, well, there. I mean, there are two two aspects of that question of thinking about how sacraments evolved in history. One would be the practice of the sacraments, how they're practiced, and then the other would be the theology of the sacraments, um, which is how we think about. Um, what we're already doing, because we were celebrate Christians were celebrating the sacraments before we did any sort of sacramental theology. You know, baptism, Christians were baptizing before any of the New Testament was written, um, and they were celebrating the Eucharist before any of the New Testament was written. And you see that reflected in the, you know, in Paul's epistles, where he's re- he's referring to things that are already happening. And uh, so, when we're dealing with the way that the sacraments are practiced. Obviously, we're only dealing with what comes after the the Paschal Mysteries, the resurrection uh, of of Jesus. Before that, we can talk about anticipations of the sacraments and, you know, symbols. And there are lots of different ways to talk about it. Um, But when we're, because they're continuations, if you will, of the incarnation of Jesus, and more than that, the 
specifically the central event of Jesus's mission, which is the Paschal Mystery, his death and resurrection, um, that there are participation in that aspect particularly. They are Christian, that they're, they're very much tied to Jesus. I would not say that the number of the sacraments has changed. Um, it's just our understanding of what a sacrament is and our, our language that we use to qualify the essential things that Christian do, Christians do um, has evolved through time. You know, sacrament starts to be used. The, the term itself is Latin. It's the Greeks use the term mystery. And so, so the language has changed. But some of the, the ways that we, uh, we do celebrate have changed as well. I mean, I think, you know, one example, which is on my, on my mind, because I think it's, it's important to take into account. And, uh, you know, some of my research has dealt with, with this is some of our baptismal practices say from the very early church, uh, the Church of the Fathers and the Apostles, to the church in the Middle Ages, the early church would have been dealing mostly with with adult baptism being really the, the norm, sometimes baptism being delayed into adulthood, even for Christian Christian families. So you think of St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, all of these, those guys would have grown up in Christian Catholic families, but they wouldn't have been baptized until uh, later in life. The, cel- the, the practice of baptism would have been much more, the preparation for it would have been much longer, more involved, a more intense version of the RCAA that we have today. And then later on, as societies changed, um, infant baptism became the norm. And I think what happened was a lot of the, you know, that that's the patristic way worked in the patristic era. I mean, it gave it gave birth to to the church. We wouldn't be here if it hadn't worked. The the that sort of medieval way worked, I think, because you had much more thoroughly intensely Christian societies that the the sacraments of initiation required a great deal of you know effort in the patristic era because they were you know Ambrose and Augustine were living in predominantly pagan cultures and in order to become a, a Christian one had to really undergo a fairly substantial transformation I mean that's what the language of baptism the symbols of baptism mean the death and resurrection um, so there's a there's a significant uh, transformation that takes place there in Christian societies you know for for hundreds of years I think Christianity had so permeated the social, you know, the art, the culture, art, every aspect of society, popular customs, and so forth, that you sort of, even if you were baptized as an infant without that sort of preparation, you under, you, you picked those, you were initiated through, you know, through popular piety, through, through just living. And the reason that I think that this is a, you know, a particularly important example for us to think about today is because our society has changed in, in the West, um, you know, in Western Europe and in the United States and other the rest of the world as well. There are exceptions um, because of the great diversity of cultures and situations. But I do think we have to think about whether our way of doing initiation is really still 
too much based upon a social model that comes from you know, medieval Christendom, or whether our social situation really resembles more that of the early church. And so maybe how we do initiation, I think that there are some very practical sort of questions that should be asked. So, th- so that's just one example of, I would say, the practice of the sacraments uh, evolving. And to get into how sacramental theology, thinking about sacraments, talking about sacraments has evolved and changed. You know, I point again to the different way of doing theology, um, again, between the early church and the medieval scholastic church, um, which is something the, the, the trend has become even stronger in the modern era, I would say. The way that theology was done in the early church was mystagogical, which is to say, um, if you're remembering from doing RCIA and things like that, that there's this period after somebody has been baptized where they're supposed to undergo a, a fairly intensive period of catechesis of deepening based on the celebration of the sacraments themselves. So the, in, in the way that the early church did theology was, it was primarily you had bishops, you know, I go back, Ambrose and Augustine are on my mind because I've been, I just visited uh, Augustine's tomb a few here in Italy a few, uh, a week ago. And so I've been thinking about him and his baptism, but these guys were, the the church's main theologians were bishops and they weren't, uh, the bishops at that time were not just administrators. They were celebrating the sacraments themselves. They were involved in every aspect of the preparation. They probably delegated some, but they didn't delegate as much as I think, you know, even pastors do today. And that's a lesson I think we could learn something from. And the way that they did theology was by giving homilies based on the what they had just celebrated to the people that they were bringing into the church. And so there was this inherently sacramental way of doing theology. In the the Middle Ages, you have universities that spring up. And so theology takes on a a more philosophical, a more abstract nature, um, which has its advantages. And I mean, there are some ways in which that's absolutely necessary in order to resolve contradictions and things like that, in order to be consistent in the language that you use, in order to criticize and debate, um, which is necessary to, to eliminate errors and things like that. Those are all advantages to that way of doing theology. But it tends to be removed then from that sacramental seed, if you, if you will, that, that sacramental substratum that, that, it, that theology had in, in the early church. And I would say to the point that, and this is going back to you know what I said at the beginning, sacramental theology has tended to be neglected in the 20th century and in the, in the 19th century and 20th century. Once you get to sort of the enlightenment, um, which has a strong influence on you know, Catholic theology eventually, that way of thinking tends to favor ideas and then ethics at the expense of religious ritual, you know, explicitly. You read Kant, he thinks religious ritual only has a very minimal value as sort of a, a visual aid to help you follow the categorical imperative. Um, and so this is something that then casts a shadow over, uh, I think, the 20th century 
and both before and after Vatican II. And so there's, I think, part part of the, the liturgical movement in the 20th century and the resource ma that Vatican II had in mind would be to rediscover some of that, that sacramental character of our theology itself, of seeing the sacraments as a source of a source of theology. And I would say, um, you know, as I said, I'm not an I'm not an expert on liberation theology, and so I have a lot to you know to to learn myself. But it seems to me that this would be a particular challenge for any 20th century theology, and I would put liberation theology in in that. Is um, the challenge would be not to sort of say, well, we have our system, we have our you know whether it be an ethical system, a dogmatic system, we have our theological system, and we need to squeeze the sacraments into it somehow. That's the temptation, the 20th century temptation. The challenge would be, is our theology growing out of the celebration of the sacraments as its source? And if it's not, then how can we, how can we back up a few steps and, and, let that, and let that happen? And I do think it's important that you mention what you did there at the end in that one of the first points that is made in the sacramental liberation theology to be discussed in a little bit was that for liberation theology, sacramental theology was not the first thing that was often reflected on, that at first liberation theologians tended to reflect on a God, Christology, ecclesiology, biblical hermeneutics. And basically what Codina is saying is that it was kind of only after that, that liberation theologians came to now say, okay, we've kind of developed what might be be the fundamentals of liberation theology. Now let's talk about sacramental theology. And I think you make some good points there that, of course, sacramental theology is kind of already happening in a pastoral way, and it's already happening with the people, just in the in the sense that this is how people come to experience God in the church. Uh, a significant part of that is through the sacraments that are already being lived uh, throughout Latin America and throughout the world. Right. Yeah, I think there is a really, I mean, I, the words are kind of loaded to say popular or even populist uh, dimension, but there's in, in the, the deepest sense that, the, as I said at, at the beginning, you know, the sacraments are how normal people, normal Catholics experience their faith in a very foundational way. So so I would want to see them there at, you know, at the source, It should they should be there at source of our theology uh, as well. Yeah. And now if I were to, I don't know, go to some kind of conference that was on sacramental theology, or if I were to pick up the journal, or maybe I were a fly on the wall with you and other buddies that you have in Rome who are doing sacramental theology, what would the conversations be like? What do you feel like are some of the contemporary issues in sacramental theology? Uh, yeah, there are a lot um, once you start to to think about it and to pull on them because the sacraments touch a lot of different things. So there are some things that have to do with when we start to talk about marriage, for example, and there are all sorts of uh, pastoral problems that come up with marriage. And uh, so one issue that I think is is difficult, I don't know quite how to resolve it, is the question of what what kind of faith is necessary for someone to you know to be married sacramentally is it really enough that somebody is baptized, say they were baptized as a child, but may never have practiced and may not really even believe? Can we say that they have the faith that's necessary to, to be the minister of the sacrament? Because it's the, the spouses that are the minister uh, ministers of the sacraments. Um, so, you know, that would be one example. 
I think that one of the key issues that some dimensions of it have gotten some attention, but I think maybe not enough are, and I think even, you know, the questions having to do with marriage fundamentally are more questions of Christian initiation than they are even problems that, ha- that to do with marriage. I think, you know, that those are the, the symptoms of the more fundamental question. So I think that there's, I alluded to before, you know, our practices of baptizing tend to be based on a social reality that may have obtained, you know, 60 years ago of you could be reasonably certain that, you know, an infant that was brought to you by Catholic parents would grow up in a Catholic community and, uh, you know, and, and be raised in the faith. Now I'm, I'm not, I don't think that you can make that as an assumption. And so that that raises some questions. There's been a lot of debate and some different experiments done in the United States with the sacrament of confirmation. And confirmation is one that is historically has often been neglected as a sacrament um, in terms of doing theology. But our our current practice of doing baptism and then giving first communion and then confirming later on in teenage years, for example, I think most sacramental theologians would agree that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense theologically. I would say, in particular, speaking for myself, we say that the Eucharist is the summit of our faith. And that's why an adult who's being, or uh, somebody in the Eastern churches who's being received into the church would receive baptism, then confirmation, then Eucharist. That's because confirmation in a, in a way is a preparation for the Eucharist. And and so some bishops have, have in, in the States, there's a, a handful of dioceses that have uh, restored the traditional order of baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. And I think that's a very interesting thing to do. I think it makes a lot of sense theologically. It also raises a whole lot of questions pastorally. When then do you confirm? You know, when then does that, do you move Eucharist to later on? It makes sense to me to, uh, that Eucharist would be would be the the final sacrament um, of initiation that you receive because it's then the sacrament that continues. It's so it can't be confused as confirmation, unfortunately, is often with uh, graduation from catechism. Instead, the the purpose of Christian initiation is to begin practicing Christianity fully. And so they're all they're, those. I think are really interesting questions that I wish uh, more people were writing on in terms of you know in terms of in terms of sacramental theology and practice. They go to they go together. That is fascinating to consider. Mm-hmm. And I know at the beginning, Tony, we started with the question of your getting involved in sacramental theology, which brought us to a story about your regency. But I wonder, just in that great incarnate sense, uh, if we might have here at the end too, maybe a story or two from maybe post-regency, if I'm correct, you're a priest. And, yeah, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> and yes. so, yeah, you might have- <laughs> for five years. <laughs> yes. So what might be some stories you might be able to tell about the sacraments that might help us just understand that incarnate sense of what is happening? A few things that I've thought about, um, you know, thinking especially about the theme of, of liberation would be the ways that that is experienced in in the sacraments. And part of that is, um, you know, there, there's this 
the profound transformation that occurs in baptism. And that I had, you know, that the main experience that I had was working with, especially adults. I really liked doing RCIA on the reservation because you would see going through this process, the way that there is people go through a transformation and they see themselves in new ways and they see they see the world in new ways. I can think in particular of one woman who was, now this was actually, um, we were preparing her kids. She had a family of, I think, five kids. So it was a relatively big family, different ages. Um, so some were already old enough to be prepared as adults, and then some were being prepared as, as, as infants. And and I was working with her while some of the volunteers who were working, who were on, on Rosebud were working with the kids. And I remember one time we read together the story of the raising of Lazarus. She, as, and as we were reading it, I noticed that she was getting emotional. You know, they were getting kind of choked up. And so I gave her a minute when we finished and I, and I said, you know, her name and is this, is this, have you heard this, you know, this story before it's the sort of thing it's popular at funerals. And she said, this is the first time I've heard this. And she paused and she said, boy, this really changes the way you look at things, doesn't it? And uh, I mean, I, I mean, it was I, that I, you know, was really quite moved as well because that's that's what that whole that journey uh, of of Christian initiation is and and means. It's that transformation. Part of that is liberation from sin and death, um, and you know, fear and all those things that go with it. I would say as well, you know, one of the great one of my primary ministries here now. Uh, in Rome, because I'm, you know, was working on my studies and then now teaching. You know, it means you're not in a parish, and so you're not doing a lot of the, you know, the fun sacramental things that pastors get to do, at least on a regular basis. But I do um, have been helping out with confessions at a couple of our Jesuit parishes here and other places. You know, that that is, I mean, there is a real liberation there of of being able to, you know, people who are who are oppressed by their, you know, by their guilt, by their sin, um, and then to be able to really say, I absolve you of your sins, um, and your sins are forgiven, is is really, and to see, you know, to see that, to see the, the I mean, even the physical effect that that has on people, the way that they are different um, in the way that they talk and carry themselves before and after before and after the sacrament. I think one other, the, the last uh, example that I have, or the last story that I was thinking of in this regard was from before, uh, before ordination and thinking about the power of the symbolic language of the sacraments and of the liturgy um, and how that is something I think that cuts across education levels and um, socioeconomic levels and things like that, that it is, that's where I would see a great, you know, hopefully benefit for liberation theology of, you know, realizing that the the symbols of the sacraments and of our liturgy really speak in a profound way to to the poor. And thinking about my grandparents on my dad's side were immigrants to the United States from Italy. My grandfather, who passed away now about 10, 10 years ago, is that right? Um, he 
Uh, he was a baker his whole life. My grandparents, I think he had a third grade education. My grandmother got a fifth grade education before before Mussolini shut down the schools in, in Italy um, in the 1930s. And um, so, you know, they were farmers. They they were they. My grandfather worked very hard, um, so they had a house. And, uh, you know, kids went to college and all that sort of thing. But I remember when I was a kid and he was still working in the bakery that he would eat early and he would go to bed probably about seven o'clock. And if you were at the grandparents' house, you had to be quiet after that point because he needed to sleep to get up at midnight to go in and bake bread and everything else early in the morning and you know work that way for his, his whole life. And one of the consequences of that was Easter was a very busy time for him in the bakery. So he would have you know, these lamb cakes that he would make and all these cake eggs, which I remember eating as a kid. And, you know, so the people would get a lot of baked goods at sweets, especially at Easter. And, and one of the things that that meant was he never went to the, like the, the Triduum services, Good Friday, Friday afternoon. He would be busy with, with work during that time. And I remember it was after I had entered the society, but I think before Regency, I don't remember when exactly it was, but I had, well, maybe it was even, no, maybe it was even before I became a Jesuit. It may have been when I was home or, you know, visiting them from college or something like that. Anyway, it was not long after he had retired. I was there over Easter. And so I went with with him and, you know, the rest of my dad um, to the Good Friday service, you know, Friday afternoon. It had been the first, you know, maybe he had seen something like that as a, he had been as a kid or something like that, but it had really been the first time that he had been to to the Good Friday service. And um, even though he went, you know, he went to Sunday mass and all those, those sorts of things. But I remember at the end of it, you know, he kind of stood there in, in the pew afterwards. And he said, Tone, I really like this. This is, you know, he said, this is the first time. And he said, I really liked it when they kissed the cross. And I just thought, you know, this is, it said so much. And you know, not a lot of words. And that was my grandfather, not a lot of words, but a lot of depth in that. And, um, you know, thinking about th this is a poor, simple believer. And the language of our liturgy really speaks, uh, speaks to him uh, and sp speaks to, um, I hope to, to all of us that we can all be that poor and that, that receptive to, to the symbols um, and the language of our faith. Thank you so much for sharing that. And as I look at you here, I can see that you're moved by these stories. And so the listeners will get the voices, but I can see in the visual too, that what you shared is very meaningful, uh, very personal, very deep. And so thank you so much, Tony, for all that you've shared today, uh, for the stories, for the expertise that you bring to sacramental theology. And, and I thank God for your beautiful vocation to work on that topic to help us understand better the sacraments that we live. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for giving thanks for giving me the, the chance to tell the stories. Obviously, you know, as you can tell, uh, this is something that that I really love, and so it's uh, it's a joy to be able to share it with you and uh, and your listeners as well. Liberation in the Christian sense does not mean political liberation alone. There's also liberation from sin, what we might call moral liberation. There's also liberation from death, what we might call existential liberation. And then liberation from the devil, what we might call spiritual liberation. 
Liturgy helps us appreciate this multidimensional character of our salvation. When we go to confession, I think we seek the moral freedom that flows from God's mercy. And when we receive the anointing of the sick, I believe we ask for physical healing if we are suffering, or for eternal life if we are approaching death. And at baptism, we renounce Satan and all his wily works and empty promises. And that said, these moral, existential, and spiritual dimensions are not exhaustive. There's a true economic, social, political sense to our worship, too. For instance, in the Old Testament, much of the ritual of the Torah has its roots in the very material liberation of the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery. And in the New Testament, much of the ritual of the seven sacraments has its roots in the very material passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a colonized Palestinian man condemned to death for stirring up a rebellion that saw the God of the poor and not the Roman emperor as supreme. At the beginning of his essay, Codina draws our attention to this historical background of our worship, and he continues by arguing that the historicizing of liturgy should not end with first-century Palestine. If it were so, liturgy would be alienated from the life of the people of God. It would be stale, mechanical, and reductively otherworldly. And sadly, I think this is the case for many liturgies throughout the contemporary Catholic Church. They do not provide nourishment for people's needs, whether spiritual, existential, moral, political, or otherwise. As a result, many folks leave Christianity altogether, or if they stay, they try to find a church that nourishes them, that truly engages them, that's replete with meaning for their lives. It's as if Mark's famous phrase does not hold, but for very different reasons than those that might have attained in his day. Religion is not an opiate for the masses because it is not solely about a falsely promised heavenly afterlife, but because we might say the opium itself has lost its potency. If clergymen had once held worshippers under a spell, now that spell has been broken, at least in many parts of the world, even those that were once thought immune to the advance of religious disaffiliation. As Kadena finishes his introduction, quote, the classical sacramental schemes, and even the modern ones, by which he means post-Vatican II rituals, are now insufficient responses to the new exigencies of the people of God. End quote, especially the poorest among them. Why are contemporary liturgies lacking in meaning for so many? Kadena describes the Latin American scenario pointedly to provide some helpful context before answering this key question. The region is, quote, like an immense concentration camp, invisible to those who visit only the airports or the residential neighborhoods of the great capitals, unquote. Most suffer poverty, mild or extreme, and this poverty is the function of a dialectical relationship with rich classes inside Latin America and rich countries outside Latin America. In this otherwise dehumanized society, in this culture of death, the poor masses affirm their humanity, their life. And for Catholics, the stages of human life have their rituals at birth, baptism, at adolescence, confirmation, and the quinceañera, at marriage, the sacrament of holy matrimony, at death, the anointing of the sick. And the life of the community as a whole 
also has its rituals, the liturgical calendar with its solemnities, patronal feasts, and rites tied to agriculture. Nevertheless, celebrations of these key rituals have their limits in the region. On one hand, only priests can confect some sacraments, and priests are few. On the other, liturgies are just plain lacking in fruitfulness. Though they speak of the church as one body in Christ, one cannot help but notice that this saying is just that, a saying. There are rich in the church, and there are poor in the church. And this gap, if changing at all, is only widening. If, as Jesus said, the poor are meant to inherit the reign of God, and the reign of God is expressed in the church, then there's a lot of cognitive dissonance to reckon with. Some of the poor alienated by the hypocrisy of the church and a lack of change in their material conditions turn to segments of the revolutionary left that are hostile to religion and concrete in organizing towards the uplifting of the poor. Given these realities, Kadena wants to ask, are Catholic liturgies simply reinforcing the status quo of the domination of the rich? Are they failing to dialogue with the struggle of the poor, who yearn for a different socioeconomic system that affirms their humanity? For the most part, I think it's clear that they are failing in these ways and in others. But, and this but is a big but, that's not to say that we need to develop what Kadena calls a, quote, parallel sacramentology, end quote, at odds with church dogma. He and I accept the doctrine and the practice of the church. What's needed is not a totally new teaching with totally new rites, but rather a view of the Christian faith and action from the angle of the poor, which is what liberation theology seeks to achieve. To a large degree, traditional sacramentology, defined as a highly instrumentalized system based on ritual laws, holy objects, the production of grace, Catholic triumphalism, a juridical mentality, and clericalism, is insufficient from the view of the poor, while it's appropriate in a certain context to know how much water can be combined with the blood of Christ in order for it to remain the blood of Christ. It's not necessarily the most pressing issue of study for people who are slowly or quickly dying of starvation and thirst and working for the sake of the survival of their families. Vatican II did enrich the traditional base on which it was built. It's easy to see how Mass in one's native language with the priest facing you might be more meaningful than a Mass in Latin with the priest facing away from you. And there are many other things to celebrate and appropriate from Vatican II. Its notion of the eschatological grace of Jesus in the Church of the present moment. Its emphasis on a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Its discovery of the Word and its revalorization of the symbolic and spiritual given its dialogue with the Eastern churches. Yet, for all the goodness of Vatican II, doubts do remain about the fullness of its ability to relate to Latin America and other oppressed regions. Is Vatican II based on a modernity too tied to the dominant sectors, to the bourgeoisie? Is it based on an excluding Enlightenment rationalism? Is it individualistic? And does it forget the sin, suffering, and death of the poor in favor of a progressive optimism? I think of the example of one's preference for a cross or a crucifix here. Many progressive Vatican II-loving people from the so-called First World prefer a cross without the corpus of Jesus in order to emphasize Jesus' victory over evil, sin, and death. 
On the other hand, many folks from Latin America, Asia, and Africa prefer a crucifix with the corpse of Jesus because it more accurately depicts their struggle in the present moment. But regardless of where one might stand on that issue, we can see that liberation theology has a sincere desire to respond to the aforementioned aporias of Vatican II. And one does not necessarily have to entirely transcend Vatican II to do so. Vatican II already planted many seeds that in time will grow into responses to these questions. As Kadena notes, it was Pope John XXIII, the convoker of Vatican II, who first spoke of the Church of the Poor as an image of the Council and its Church. We've discussed in previous episodes how liberation theology centers the reign of God. And that's precisely what Kadena does here. He orients the sacraments towards the reign. This move is textually biblical, but it's not merely good exegesis. It's also pastorally practical for those doing theology from the view of the poor. So how to situate the sacraments within a broader theology of the reign of God. Curiously, Kadena goes back to the church father Tertullian, from whom we get the Latin term sacramentum from the Greek original mysterian, as Tony mentioned in the interview. In the Greek, mysterian refers to the salvific will of God, which is another way of saying, as the Our Father puts it, that God's kingdom would come. Here we can think of the prophet Daniel, who in the second chapter sees a mysterious vision in which all earthly reigns give way to the reign of God, a reign that would last forever and would encompass both Gentiles and Jews. This reign, which Jesus inaugurated, would not be static. Rather, per Christ himself, it would grow in time and in space in history. Quote, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. End quote. That's from Matthew 13, 31 and 32. And as if this wasn't enough to get his point across, Jesus follows up the mustard seed parable with another that emphasizes the growing, progressive nature of the rain via the image of yeast, which causes the dough to rise. Quote, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. End quote. That's from Matthew 13, verse 33. And here's why I like to say that liberation theology is ressourcement. Codina goes to the church fathers and to the Bible to illustrate a point of significant meaning for contemporary ecclesial life. When we go back to the sources, we find an incipient Christianity a lot like what the liberation theologians say Christianity is, and it's quite the coincidence. So, doing some historical root tracing, we see that sacramentum refers to Mysterian, and that Mysterian, hence the title of the Aecaria Sabrino anthology I'm using here, a Mysterium Liberationis, refers to God's salvific will for the progressive coming of a reign that would begin with the person of Jesus. Yet more can be said about this reign. We can speak to its theological character, its symbolic character, its eschatological character, and its citizens. 
Theologically, the rain is a free communication of God. In other words, it's a gift that God gives. In the creation of the universe, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the sending of the Holy Spirit, even where allegedly secular forces are doing the liberation, the liberation is ultimately from God. And that's quite a biblical principle as well. We can recall that it was Cyrus of Persia who freed the Jewish captives of Babylon as described in the first chapter of the book of Ezra. Indeed, per the word mysterion, God's plan for our total salvation is mysterious, and this mystery is not entirely non-incarnate and supra-historical. It works itself out in history, as not only King Cyrus, but also the fleshly Jesus suggest. Symbolically, the reign of God is anticipated in the Exodus and signified in the preaching, miracles, and other gestures of Jesus. And here, when Using the term symbolically, we do not mean that these events were symbols alone. They were historical and material. But what I mean to say is that they are not only historical and material. They also point towards something beyond themselves, which is where the symbolic and the eschatological dimensions of the reign come together. And by eschatology, we mean the last things or how things will be in the end. Let me pose a few examples. The Exodus the historical liberation of a particular people from slavery, points to the fact that the destiny of all people is freedom from slavery. Jesus' curing of particular sick people anticipates the destiny of all people to enjoy full health. And Jesus' preaching that the reign of God belongs to the poor in the present tense means there's a process of liberation that begins now and has the utopia of the poor as an endpoint. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple from money changers is suggestive of a more general freedom from greed that will be actualized in the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus' preference for work among the marginalized sectors of society shows the church what it should be doing until the end of time, caring for the immediate physical needs of the oppressed, while also working for their systematic liberation from the root causes that cause these physical needs. And that brings us to the addressees of the reign of God, the poor. Per the Beatitudes, we know the kingdom is there. And per Jesus' own description of his mission, we know it's the liberation of the poor that he has come to bring about. But the poor are not the only addressees of the reign. That evocative parable In Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats shows us that the liberation of the poor is not only Jesus' end goal, but also the definitive means by which the saved will enter his reign. Unless one works for food for the poor, for water for the poor, for their clothing, unless one cares for the poor migrant and the poor prisoner, one will not be able to enter the reign of God. That's simply how Jesus describes it. For the poor, Jesus desires liberation. And for the rich, Jesus desires their conversion to the cause of the poor. This way, in the reign of Jesus, all will be free. The Catholic Church names seven sacraments, but there are other sacraments too. If, as Tony put it, the term sacrament means the enduring graced presence of the embodiment of Jesus. 
Per Matthew 25, just discussed, the poor are sacraments. When we've heard the cry of the poor, we've heard the voice of Jesus. When we've looked at the faces of the poor, we've looked at the face of Jesus. When we've chosen to ignore the plight of the poor, we've chosen to ignore Jesus. As Pedro Casaldaliga put it in a poem cited by Codina, quote, the spirit has decided to dispense an eighth sacrament, the voice of the people, end quote. And I do think this sacrament is necessary for salvation, though many, including myself at times, would rather ignore Matthew 25. Nevertheless, there Matthew 25 remains. Now, regarding the seven sacraments themselves, a liberation theology seeks to pastorally reflect on the best way to connect them to the life of the poor. It's not a matter of ignoring or changing church teaching. Rather, it's a matter of how best to engage with church teaching and scripture according to the signs of the times in Latin America. I'd like to dwell on two sacraments that Codina presents at the end of the chapter, Baptism and Eucharist. The pastoral challenge of the contemporary practice of baptism, Codina writes, is that it's often reduced to its individual dimension. It's a private affair that takes place outside the context of the church community. Further, it's deprived of its meaning of radical apostolic conversion, and that's in part because the sacrament is regularly administered to babies. And when it's administered to adults, it's frequently framed as their intellectual acceptance of the Catholic Church's creed and not as a commitment to the promotion of justice. In the Bible, the baptism of John is accompanied by his preaching about repentance, true repentance, which involves sharing with the poor and discontinuing corrupt financial practices. These elements are not at the forefront of baptism as commonly understood in the church today. And the baptism of Jesus by John has a definite ministerial sense. It's right after Jesus' baptism and temptations to power in the desert that he begins his public ministry with a commentary on the scroll of Isaiah proclaiming liberty to the oppressed. This element is likewise obscure in contemporary baptismal practice in many cases. In a terse turn of phrase, Kadena remarks, quote, The problem in Latin America is not the baptism of infants, but the baptism of the rich, end quote. Scandal comes from the initiation of the rich into the Christian community without their conversion towards the poor. They are like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who keep their wealth to themselves. And like Peter in that same chapter, we can ask these wealthy alleged Christians, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of your proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. And after this, Peter's question, the couple dies. This narrative has an important symbolic meaning. Though baptism gives new life, those who fail to live in justice in accord with the call of their baptism suffer a spiritual death. They were entrusted with the Christian message of liberation to the poor, but they failed in their responsibility to actualize it. They loved their wealth more than they loved the God of the poor. And now the Eucharist. What is a liberative Eucharist like? First, we can trace its origin to the Exodus. The Passover meal is a celebration of the God who freed the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. It has subversive roots 
At its heart is the overturning of an unjust economic system that also squashed the spiritual life of the people. Because the Hebrew people were in physical chains, they could not go out into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to God. With Jesus, the story is similarly subversive. The Eucharist is the last meal of a man who, that same night, would be arrested for stirring up the masses against the Roman emperor and who the next day would be sentenced to execution, dying murdered by the state. It's a subversive sharing of bread and wine, of his body and blood, which he was to shed in martyrdom, in which his disciples were also to shed in martyrdom for their work in promotion of the reign of God. Jesus asks his disciples to remember him by repeating this last supper. Do this in remembrance of me. It's like he's saying, do as I have done, Preach the reign of God, liberate the captives, commune deeply with each other in a common meal that foreshadows the just society that's breaking into the world. Give your lives for love for one another, love as I have loved you. It's in this subversive sense that I wrote the following words which provoked much discussion a couple of years ago. Liturgy should not be beautiful. At the Last Supper, Jesus washed stinky feet In the garden, Jesus sweated blood. At the cross, Jesus was violently murdered. Upon rising, Jesus still had open wounds. No liturgy should not be beautiful. It should be ugly and scandalous. What is meant here is that in the most plain, common, literal, natural sense, the last meal of an executed man is not beautiful. His imprisonment is not beautiful. His torture is not beautiful. His dying sighs from the cross are not beautiful. On the contrary, the murder of the greatest leader of faith and justice in the history of humankind is a horrible, ugly, scandalous thing. Religious and imperial leaders conspired to kill the God who made them and who loved them to the end. And when we do the Last Supper ourselves, in remembrance of him, we ought to recognize that. Now, supernaturally, I do think that the Eucharistic liturgy is beautiful, because I think that love is beautiful that the resurrection of the dead is beautiful, that the salvation of the human race is beautiful. And I believe these things are true by faith. So what does this dual reality, this paradox, that is, of the natural horror and the supernatural beauty of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection mean for our masses today? I think, as does Kadena, that we ought to highlight the subversive, scandalous, ugly sense of the Eucharist for a world that's far from the reign of God a world that's so shamefully divided, a world in which the blood of the poor, like the blood of Abel the just, screams to heaven for justice. As for the disciples, at the culmination of Jesus' ascension, it does little to stare at the angels in heaven when there is much work to be done, and when some of our churches physically have marble angels around the altar, I think it gives us a false sense of security, a sense that everything is okay when it is not that our salvation did not depend on our common project of the liberation of the poor, that faith is more important than love. And that's my position, and I'm going to stick to it for now, though I'm always open to discussion and to fraternal correction where need be. And so let us, as Kadena began to do in his essay, continue to reflect on how we can both faithfully embrace the church's traditional teachings on the sacraments and also dream new dreams of liturgies that are truly liberative for Bona, for Zayed, with, as the martyred Argentine Archbishop Enrique Angelelli used to say, 
And as Pope Francis has repeated, quote, one ear to the gospel and the other to the people, end quote. Thanks so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let's end our time together with a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. Lord of the universe, God and the Son of God, who humbles himself that for our salvation he hides himself under an ordinary piece of bread. Let us look at the humility of God, pour out our hearts before him. Let us humble ourselves that we may be exalted. Let us hold back nothing of ourselves that he who gave himself totally to us may receive us totally. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.